today is uh, such a, obviously a great big day, just not only for Christians, but even people who are far from God, um, they, uh, they too kind of recognize this as being a holy and sacred day. So, so um, to prepare us for the Bible, because that's what I do, I teach from the Bible, not from my opinion, amen? Um, I would love it if, uh, if you would just pray with me, um, just a, kind of a prayer of just kind of openness for us right now. And Father, we thank you for loving us first. We thank you, God, that we can come into this place and we can have fun and we can smile and, and we can do so in your house. And God, that's what this is. This is your house. This is the house that you are building. And Father God, this isn't about one person. This is about a movement of God that you created many, many years ago. So today, and, and just honoring all of the years uh, that have been put into making this wonderful place what it is, Lord Jesus, um, God, I pray that you would just open our minds and open our hearts. And God, this church is built upon grace and truth. And Father God, I pray that you would just illuminate our minds, maybe that you would unclutter some things in our minds right now that are maybe getting in the way of what you have for us today. And Lord, let this not just be another service, um, just from another day that we're typically at church, but let us receive something directly from you. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Uh, whoever the culprit is for the hat, I do want to say thank you very, very much. I love it. I do. I do. And I don't have one. So that is one for sure way to get me to wear camo. Um, if you're new to DBC, all of this is probably catching you off guard. What this proves is people actually listen to what I say, which is scary um, because they've heard that I'm a Miami Dolphin fan. And they also heard that I don't really have camo because I'm not from around here. So, um, so now, um, see now I'm getting there, right? That's a little better. I've been listening. Um, but I, I'm so thankful that you're here and that we can smile. And there's been so much conversation about wearing camo. And I want to say thank you, Richard. Um, it's been really good. Yeah, we can clap for that. That's really good. I had nothing to do with all of the, the camo flurry thing. That was, that was actually Richard's joke that is actually on you because uh, we all embraced it. So... Um, let's get into the Bible, shall we? We'll get there in just a couple seconds. If you're new to DBC, we're actually finishing up a series today, and this series is called The Liturgies of Life. And what we've talked about particularly is we've said that a liturgy of life is an arena where God recalibrates our hearts, he reforms our desires, and he rehabituates our loves to his best life for us. So we've been looking at this statement, and there's so many truths in the Bible that really speak into this, but we've strategically picked some passages that speak into this because what I want for you honestly is what God wants for you and what God wants for you is most likely better than what you're currently experiencing. Amen? So because of that, there are some things that have to be reformed, maybe some thought processes that have to be challenged, maybe some issues in your own heart that have to be dealt with. And all of these things, we have habits then they are kind of wrapped around our life, then these habits um, are, are built around some ideas of loves. And sometimes we love the right thing and sometimes we love we, the wrong thing. So we're gonna talk about uh, the idea of love today, not from some ooey gooey, mushy kind of way. Um, but I, here's what I, I want us to, 
here's what I want to know about you. Some of you I've never met, so I just want to kind of know who's in the room right now. So I'm going to just ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud because it, it's weird if people talk in church other than the person who's on stage. So uh, you can just kind of re- respond by putting your hand up. I just want to ask you kind of this, this simple question. Um, who in here wakes up nearly every morning without an alarm? Without an alarm. Wow, put your, you should be proud of this. Put your hands up. These are the overachievers right here. I mean, if you're getting up at 11, I mean, seriously, but still, I mean, for the most part, and some of you are like, I'm getting up at 11, I don't know. Um, so, so how many of you, you get up when the alarm goes off? Like it goes off one time, you're up. Anyone? Anyone? I'm pretty much that, that way. All right, so now... I'm not trying to shame you, but that's, that's really where we're leading right now. But I don't want to shame you with what I'm about to ask you next. How many people need to have an alarm that, that goes off two or three times, and then you finally, because you're late for work or school, then you get up, all right, so, so we can't really count on these people for much of anything in the morning. Um, that's why we had 11 o'clock service today, actually, uh, just in case you need the extra time. Now, how many... How many people, you're probably not going to be honest about this about yourself, but you'd be honest about somebody else in your family. How many people are just solely convinced that you may not even wake up if there's a natural disaster that goes through your neighborhood? We have a couple. We have a couple. Thank you for being honest. And thank you for being honest about who you're with, because that's really what's happening right now. You see, the the reason why I kind of introduced the talk in this way is it would be so easy in our life to kind of just sleep through life. It'd be so easy to just kind of go moment by moment, day by day, year by year, and just kind of like punch the clock on life and miss life as it happens. And kind of like expect this or perhaps expect an event to happen in the future or something in in your near or distant future. And we could put so much emphasis on what's going to happen in the future. And as the moments and days just click, 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 click off that we miss God's life for us now. And God has a life for you to live now. He doesn't want, he doesn't just have some future thing for you. I believe that he has a future that he wants you to be living in right now. Right now could be shaping your future. The reason why this talk is so important, not just because it's Christmas and because you're here and because you're awake, the reason why it's so important is because we have so much that we could miss if we just fall asleep and just we're asleep at the wheel of life. We have so much that we could miss. We have so many distractions in our life. I mean, with work and school and relationships and kids and sports events and school events and work events, we we can just get so just enamored in our schedule and just miss life. As a matter of fact, I could prove it to you because if I were just going to have a conversation with you over coffee and I would ask you, or tea, sorry, I don't want to be biased, or water in case you're none of the above, but if we're just to sit down and just have a discussion, just you and I, most likely if I ask you the question, hey, tell me, tell me about, about 2017, you would say, wow, it went by really, what's the next word? Fast. And it's like, it just went by really fast. Maybe it was good, maybe it was not so good, but you would say it went really fast. You see, your life bears witness to what I just said. Life is so quick. It's so fast. And yet, 
I, I want to kind of tell you this. I mean, you, you may never come back to this church if I tell you this information. This, this is coming directly from some trips that it's Christmas time. But in, in view of that, I wanted to give you this story. I haven't even cleared this with my wife right now. Um, and she's, she doesn't have a happy face right now, but it's okay. Um, I'm sorry, dear, ahead of time. All right. So I, I just want you to know, uh, and I'm not looking for friends necessarily, and I'm not looking for somebody to necessarily agree with me, maybe a little, but we'll get to that in a second. But in lieu of, of it being the, the traveling season, I just want to kind of tell you this story. So uh, for, for us, when we've lived much of our adult lives, all of our adult lives married, but away from our hometown, so we would drive to Illinois over and over, and this is actually the shortest distance that we've ever lived from Illinois. And we lived in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, we first got married, and it was a long drive. And then we moved back to Illinois for a little while. And then we went to Melbourne, Florida, and that was a longer drive. It was about 19 hours, I believe. It was a forever drive. And uh, so one of the things that, that we would do in these trips, I would predominantly drive. Just I like to drive. But I would get tired. Now, when I would get tired, see, I don't need a judgment zone on what I'm about ready to say. But when I would get tired, sometimes I would pull over at a rest stop. Now, some people throw cold water on themselves, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm a cold water person. Some of you are like, uh, doing that. None of that worked for me. But what, what does work for me is we'll pull over to rest stop and I have no shame in this, right? We would pull over to rest stop and I literally would get out of my car and Marla would be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I need to wake up. And I would literally go out at the rest stop and I would do jumping jacks. Real talk. I would do jumping jacks and she would look at me like I was just crazy. Maybe I am, I don't know. You can, you can be the judge of that. But she would look at me like I was just crazy. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to wake up. And, and I would always try and convince her. I'm like, that's better than the alternative. Like if I'm driving and like, I'd rather get out and do some jumping jacks or I, you know, I think I, I don't know. I may have done some mountain climbers too. Like in some of these things, I don't do it anymore because it, she, she was embarrassed, so then it became an issue. Um, I have no shame with this at all. But, but one of the things that I, I tell you that, the, one of the reasons why I tell you that story is because, you see, sometimes we have to do whatever it takes to keep ourselves awake. We, sometimes we have to do whatever it takes to keep ourselves awake. And, and for you, you have to do whatever it takes to keep yourself spiritually and relationally and physically awake. You should, be, you should be on the edge of your seat to say, what should I do? What, what is necessary for, for me so I stay awake, so I don't just let the moments just click off and the days click off and the years click off, and then you get at the end of the year and I say, well, tell me about the year you just had, and you say, well, it went by really, what was the word? Fast. See, there's, there's a reality here that we have to kind of stop in these moments and say, why is it that I'm just allowing my life to just go by so fast? And what is it that I'm giving up if I just allow my life to go by so fast? You see, being asleep at the wheel is very dangerous, but being asleep at life is even worse. Being asleep at life is even worse. See, we have longings for significance. Everybody does. We have longings to be connected relationally with other people. And if you're asleep at life, you're not gonna have either one of those. We have, we crave meaning. We have lives that, that we just crave meaning and you're not gonna have that meaning if you just are asleep at life. 
God has ordained for you to be here right now or to maybe be listening to this talk right now. That is intentional. That is part of God's intentional plan for your life. And if you're just asleep through life, you may miss what he has for you. And God does have a plan for you. He has a meaning for you. He has a purpose for you. He has a design for this church. He has a design for the capital C church for us to be one. God's original design before the fall of mankind is that we would be one with him. The Christmas story is one where God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. I love what Paul David Tripp said. He said, it's dangerous to live without your heart being fully captured by the awe of God. You see, if you're asleep, you're just going to allow those moments and days and years to click off. He said, it's dangerous to live without your heart being captured by the awe of God because the awe of God is quickly replaced by the awe of you. And it's going to be eclipsed by the awe of your schedule. It's going to be the awe of whatever it is that you want your mind to be dwelling upon. It's going to be, you're going to have habits that are formed around the awe of you. You're going to have things in your mind and your relationships and everything about you. If you're not um, caught up and swept up in the awe of God, it's going to be lost in the awe of you. We have so much at stake here. First John 4.19 says this, we love because God first loved us. We love. If you're a follower of Jesus, we love because he first loved us. And we're here. It's Christmas Eve. We're celebrating the season of, of the birth of our Savior. But that was an expression of God's love for you. So we love because he first loved us. The love of God is patient with you. The love of God is not easily angered. The, the love of God has no envy. The love of God is, is hopeful, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. The love of God is kind over you. The, the love of God takes even our brokenness, and the love of God takes that and makes it something beautiful and meaningful. God's love came to us so that we could actually love like him. God's love came to us so that we could love like him. The main passage we're going to be in is a very familiar passage, is Luke 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this particular passage. I'm going to show you what I think are a couple interesting things into the storyline of Jesus. But I want to look at three words specifically that are mentioned in the latter part of this passage. And they would define or help to define Jesus as being God. And, and we'll get there in just a couple of moments. So Luke 2, starting in verse 1. I love how in the Bible that even a skeptic could, could look at the Bible and they can, be, they can be skeptical of some things, but there are some things that are concrete within the Bible that proves its historical accuracy. And this you're actually going to see in verse 1. There are two figures that we can even look outside of the Bible, historical figures who outside of the Bible can be verified. And now we see that, th that all of that can be verified within this, the timeline of which the birth of the Savior um, is what we know that, that time frame 
claim to have been. So we can look even outside of the Bible. So in case you're, you're a little bit, little bit skeptic of, of all this and you're just here because it's Christmas or Christmas Eve and you're thinking, ah, I just have to be here maybe even a couple times a year. I want you to know that, that the Bible is true and it can be validated outside of itself. So it's not just a whole bunch of circular reasoning. There are historical uh, facts and figures that can be found elsewhere. Let's go into verse 1, reading verse through verse 14. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. He's the ruler at this time. This is Augustus is the great nephew of Julius Caesar. That's who this is. Verse 2. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to his own town to register. A census happened every 12 years. It was mandatory because a census was taken for two different reasons, uh, for military reasons, for placement into the military, and also for tax reasons. The government has to get their money then and now, right? So uh, no laughing, it's true. Um, But so in verse 4, so Joseph also went, or excuse me, and everyone went to his own town to register. Verse 4, so Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth, went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married with him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So Mary and Joseph are leaving. Of course, Mary is well along in her pregnancy. And now they're leaving Nazareth. Nazareth itself uh, some of you are maybe small town people, maybe you're farmers just kind of in, living in an agricultural area geographically. You can really resonate with this because Nazareth was a very small town uh, and it wasn't a, even that organized. They believed that it had a two to 400 people who lived in the area and it was largely just an agricultural area. So if you're in agriculture, you understand this. This was a very small town. As a matter of fact, in the, the city or the town of Nazareth was not even, because it had no um, reason, no positive thing to even be mentioning about it. It was just kind of a, a small town that people would dismiss. And so that's when the storyline of Jesus later in his life, they, they said, oh, you're from Nazareth. Well, nothing good comes from Nazareth. So it was kind of a despised city and kind of like a, a meaningless town. And yet, This is where they're traveling from because that's where Mary and Joseph were at the time. And now they're going to Bethlehem, the town of David, the city of David. And they had to go there because Joseph, because of his family line, was from from Bethlehem. So they had to travel to Bethlehem because of the census. Now, you may look at this and say, okay, why in the world would a pregnant woman opt to take about an 80-mile trip, either on the back of a horse or camel, or walking to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And I can only think of two, I think, are pretty good reasons. And the scholars believe there's two, generally, two good reasons. 
the first reason is because she knew that she was well along in her pregnancy and they just wanted to be together. And Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. So Mary just want, would want to be with him at, possibly at the time of her birth and that would make sense. But also, um, it's also believed, and I think this is most likely, maybe both of these are true, that they knew that there was something significant that was about to happen and that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. Because the prophet Micah, in Micah 5.2, he said this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah 5.2. This is, this would be prophetic, and it's believed by many that that Mary and Joseph both would know that the, that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. So then both of these things, are, I think, are very valid reasons why a woman well along in her pregnancy would endure the hardship of either a camel, horse, or walking. 80 miles. I mean, that is, that is quite a trip, is it not? But... Um, that being said, there was no room for them in the inn. Let me kind of clear up some things about the inn. There's some different ways that this is interpreted. Some people believe that the inn actually was like a tavern, so it was more like a bar, kind of like passing through this area. Some people believe that. And there's there's some, some of the language work kind of leads in that way. Some people also have been told a story that Jesus was born in, in a manger and there were a bunch of animals and we have a bunch of pictures and images in our country uh, saying there were a bunch of animals around that. And there's really no, no clear scriptural evidence that Jesus was born with like a bunch of animals around. As a matter of fact, the kind of dwelling places that they would have uh, in their day is that the inn would be above and that's where the humans would stay and then the animals would stay underneath and oftentimes it would be the same kind of dwelling, uh, two stories, people on top, animals on the bottom and what the scripture could be saying to us um, and, and like I said, there is a slight bit of disagreement on this uh, with the scholars is that uh, the people, there was no room in the inn up top but so they had to stay underneath and also there's, some people who think that maybe it was an extended, like an outbuilding also where animals would be normally, but we see no evidence that that's where they are at the time. There's a couple technical things um, that I wanted to share with you. Verse 8 says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I think I would be too. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior who has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with an angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. The significant three words I want to show you are right here in verse 11 of what's being talked about here it, within the, the birth narrative of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, that God becoming a man, that he was fully God and fully man at the same time. Now these three words that are, are being used to describe Jesus, his, 
is Savior, or meaning Deliverer, or Christ, or Messiah, and Lord. And the significance, I believe, of the birth is plainly revealed to the shepherds when Jesus is called the Savior, the Christ, or the Lord. The Savior is identifying that this is the Savior of the world. That his very name, Jesus, would signify that he is, he is part of God's redemptive work of salvation, marking him as a child, but also being the deliverer of the people of Israel and the deliverer of people from their sins. And second, that he would be Christ. He is the Messiah. So this would be the long-expected hope. Over 700 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, either in his birth, life, death, or, uh, or resurrection, and then even his second coming. So all of these things are pointing to him as being the deliverer, delivering people from their sins, and also him being the Messiah, the long-expected hope. And some of you need hope this morning. Some of you have had a very difficult 2017. And the only true and lasting hope is found in Jesus. And then lastly, Lord, identifying him as being the ruler, being the sovereign. That this is, this is not just, just a baby. That this is God becoming like us. This is also what it says in Colossians 1.15. It says, he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Some is challenging about the English language and translating of the Bible to the English language is it says the firstborn over all creation. And it sounds as if Jesus himself was created by God the Father, simply not true. This is saying that Jesus was, was a part of creation, that he, the Father, and the Spirit were a part of creation. But that when he came to earth, he was the image of the invisible God. So before they would always wonder, well, what was God like? And now well, there was a span of 33 years where they could see what God was like. Because as John says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. So you may be asking yourself, and maybe you're, you're inquisitive of the faith right now and you're saying, well, what is God like? Look at the life of Jesus. It has been written out so well. And it's impeccably accurate. Is if you want to know what God is like, look what Jesus did. Look at Jesus' relationships. Look at his life. Look what he invested in. That is what God is like because Jesus Christ is God. Also, in this, I want us to see that God's love came to us so ultimately that we could love like him. God's love came to us, that Jesus came out of heaven down to earth, not to just leave us in our sins and say, well, well, now here's what you've done. Go live the rest of your life in turmoil and pain and anguish. No, Jesus came, the, the incarnation of Jesus is directly connected with the, the crucifixion of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the glorious resurrection of Jesus 
Without the incarnation of Jesus, the, the resurrection of Jesus would have been pointless for us. There would be no hope unless there was an incarnation, knowing that he was God become a man, that he, he dwelled among us, that he, he tore the veil, the separation between us and God the Father. That is the, the love that he has shown for us. So we love because he first loved us, because Jesus loved us, because the Father loves us, because the Holy Spirit loves us. And as an expression to every follower of Jesus is that love, is the thing that we desire, it's the thing that we crave, it's the thing that, that we need. It's the very thing that God wants us to show the rest of the world. So I've talked about God's love and saying that God's love came to us. Do you love him in return? Do you love him in return? Would your time say that you love him in return? Would your checkbook or your bank account say that you love him in return? Would, would your heart say that you love him in return? the things that you dwell upon, would they say that you love him in return? See, not only has is, is Christ been forgotten or dismissed by the world, he's also been crowded out of many believers' hearts. Not only is, it, I mean, we expect the world to act like the world, but if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you've committed your life to Jesus, our love should be, it should be bearing the fruit of, of first of the love of God that's been shown to us. And then we are a reflection or reflecting that love to the watching world. And if I'm honest, I just don't know if that's consistent with everybody's life in here. Some of us, we've just, create, we've just crowded out of our heart the love of God. Some of us have, have crowded out, not only from our hearts, some of us, we've just crowded out of our home. Like we just don't have space for God anymore. Some of us, we have just crowded him out of our head. Like we just don't even think about God unless we're in here. And lastly, some of us have just crowded out God because of our habits. And, and what we've done is we've just, we've formed so many habits over the awe of us and we've lost the awe of God. My hope and my desire for you, I'm broken for you. I want you to be in so awe of God, an understanding that God became a man, that he dwelled among us. Not to laugh at us and say, oh, you poor pitiful sinners. But he stepped out of heaven and came to earth so we could be one with the Father. I am in awe of that reality. Because without Jesus, I would be dead in my sins. I would have no hope. I would be in total turmoil. I, my life would be nothing but despair. So I want to ask you this question really based right off of 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. What would people say that you love the most? What would people say that you love the most? 
Don't quickly just dismiss that question and say, well, it's obviously Jesus. What would people say that you love the most? I don't ask you these. It's kind of a series of questions based off of 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. These same people, people around you, people you have relationships with, people in your home, uh, maybe your spouse, your kids for sure, people at your workplace, your, your friends, your extended family, your neighbors. Would they say these things about you? You can fill in your name here that you're patient with people. Would they say that about you? Because the love of God is a love of patience. Would they say about you that you're not easily angered? Would they say about you that you're not holding on to all of your wrongs and their wrongs? Would they say that about you? Would they say that you are not easily irritated? Let's be honest. Would they? Would they say that maybe a word that comes to mind for you is, you know what? They are hopeful. Or maybe that they would say about you, they would say your name is kind. You see, you want to know, well, what, what, is, what does the love of Jesus look like radiating to the watching world? This is a pretty clear picture. And we love because he first loved us. I want us to end this service on taking the Lord's Supper. And I want to invite the the guys who are going to be helping with this. You guys can come forward. But leading us into this, we're going to do it a little bit different. Seems like I say that every single time we take the Lord's Supper. But before we do this, I want us to stop for a moment. And before we pass the plates, guys, I want us to stop for a moment. We're just going to observe a moment of silence. I want you to first seek the Lord right now. And and maybe even without closing your eyes, of course, but looking at the screen. And maybe there's some confessing to God. Maybe you haven't been patient. Maybe you've been easily angered. Maybe you've been holding on to so many wrongs. And there's just bitterness in your heart. Maybe you're just so easily irritated that people can't even approach you. Maybe when they think of you that you're not hopeful at all, or maybe because of that, also you're not even someone who's viewed as being kind. I don't know. I don't know. Only God does. So before we take the Lord's Supper, I want us to stop, and I want you to be honest with yourself, and I want you to be honest with God. And if you believe that you have violated God's law of love with any of these things, I want you to stop right now and with just within your own self, I want you just to commit, if you feel led to commit to Christ, say, you know what? I confess that, that sin before you. I'm sorry, God. I commit that relationship to you. I commit my future to you. I commit my, my present circumstance to you. And maybe what you need to do right now is to to begin the change by confessing to God. 
and make that your first act of repentance. So let's, I'm gonna give us a moment of silence. You can either look at the screen and you can really seek the Lord on those things or you can close your eyes and then I will close us in prayer. Gentlemen, as soon as, as I say amen, you can start passing the plates, okay? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this great opportunity just to be real with you and to be real with ourselves. And Father, we love because you first loved us. You loved us by sending your son, Jesus. God became a man. He had a face. He had neighbors. He had a community. He had a place of worship. He had brothers and sisters. We don't have to wonder what love is when it comes to you, Lord Jesus. Because I believe the greatest expression of that love was you. And God, before we take these elements, examine us each and every one. God, if there's anything else in our hearts, and our minds, God, that needs to be given to you, we do so right now. We commit them to you. It is the first act of repentance. And Lord, if there's somebody in this place right now and they're not even a follower of Jesus, maybe they're so far away from you right now. God, I pray that you would touch their hearts right now and their mind God, draw them to yourself. Draw them to yourself. Greater love has no one than this, the one who would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus, you call us friends. Jesus, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for dying on, on that cross to take away the sins of those who would repent. We pray upon that name. We seek you. Amen.